from the Office of Student Research at Roosevelt University. This is The Theory Club. How are you? Hi, I'm pretty good since I'm one hour post COVID chat. So <laughs> doing well. Dear listener, if Emily falls asleep at any moment, just uh, be understanding. <laughs> Nor me. Uh, welcome to the Theory Club, everybody. Great to have you listening today. Uh, for our final episode of this season, we have a very special guest. It is Dr. William Hussey, an associate professor of music theory at Roosevelt University. Dr. Hussey, how are you? I'm doing great. Great. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us and be on this episode. You've been a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty integral <laughs> pretty integral part of um, my own progression in music theory and Emily's progression as well. Well, I don't know whether to apologize for that integral part of this or to compliment. I really don't know. <laughs> I mean, we're thankful. I won't speak for Emily. I'm thankful <laughs> for, for um, Call me in 10 uh, years and you still are. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Uh, Dr. Hussey was uh, the faculty advisor for my first research project, my first grant funded project. And so that was uh, the thing that I did last summer around music theory pedagogy. Uh, so we had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, and um, Emily is taking some, her, her theory course sequence with Dr. Hussey. Do you teach theory four as well? I teach them all. Just this year, I, I didn't teach theory four, so I teach them all. Okay, great, great. So let's start off with just hearing a bit about your background, Dr. Hussey, about just like when you got into music, what instruments you played, and when you ended up deciding that you wanted to do music theory and how you made that decision. Well, I was a... Um, euphonium player first in high school and then went to trombone um really wait yeah, yeah. and then <laughs> wow uh, yeah and but one of the things i really liked doing was playing in chamber music and i spent a lot of time um arranging music for my brass quintet or quartet or whatever i was playing for and kind of got me into theory i wanted to i wanted to be a composer so my undergraduate degree is from louisiana state university in music composition because I had this dream of sitting at home all day composing music and getting up whenever I felt like it. But then when I was doing composition at LSU, while I really enjoyed it, uh, I, I realized it was more of, of something of a hobby because my teacher was like, what are you working on next? And when I would finish a composition and my reaction was always, what are you talking about? What am I working on next? I'm going to take a break from composition. And I realized that I was enjoying my theory classes. I was more interested in how music worked. Um, and composing was kind of a hobby on the side. So then I went to the University of Texas and got my master's uh, and doctorate at the University of Texas. My doctorate uh, work was, dissertation was on Brahms songs. And um, then I um, 
I do my, I got my job at Roosevelt university in the late nineties and, uh, the job that I wanted in the city I wanted to have. And, um, I started doing more research on Shostakovich. So here at Roosevelt, I teach in the musicianship sequence. I teach advanced music analysis and, and counterpoint. And I also have taught classes on Shankarian analysis, on form analysis, on, um, I do the graduate theory overview. Um, and then I also do have done several classes on Shostakovich. I wish I had known that we would have had you on the Shostakovich episode. We literally had an episode. Yeah. Right? Which episode? yeah. That was on my favorite piece. Symphony number 10, the second movement. Uh, yeah, the second movement, my favorite movement. Symphony number 10 is not my favorite of his pieces, but no, the second movement is my favorite movement. Of okay. Him. No stealing my favorite composer though. That's not fair. I, He's I, mine. Shostakovich before you were born. So I think you're going to lose that argument. <laughs> um, okay. Wow. There was a lot about that that I didn't know <laughs> about your, your I didn't mean, musical give you background. <laughs> um, I would like to know if you feel like, do you feel like your background in composition how does that inform your teaching? Does that at all? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, whenever one of the things that we try to do in in regular times, we didn't do that that much this year with COVID times, but um, is we always try to do more composition in music theory classes. It's an active way to learn how music theory works. And so very often, um, I say to a student, you know, what are you trying to do in this part? you know, or something like this. And they say, well, I want to sound inconclusive at this point, or I want to have this really soaring melody, or I want to have this. And to me, uh, theory was always a, a, a way to kind of get to composition, you know, um, then, you know, until you describe, I like to, when I'm doing music theory, think, what is the affect of this chord progression, this melody, this um, form, this things like that. And uh, that to me is what engages me about uh, music analysis more than anything. Why do I like this piece of music or why do I hate this piece of music or why does this music affect me in, in ways it does? Because if, if the music doesn't speak to me, then I don't really care to analyze it myself. So I think composition is a real great way. That's why one of the classes I like to teach is counterpoint because people um, have to write in a particular style and they learn so much about theory by actively doing as opposed to taking music they already have and having to analyze it, which is great. But when you have to write it and you're trying to imitate a style or something like that, there's so much more. It's a more active way to learn about music theory and music analysis. Hmm. Okay. Another thing I'd like to know, since you've been at the, in the same institution for such a long time, is there something that has really changed for you in regards to pedagogy or the way that you conduct your classes or something that has kind of shifted over time in the way that you structure your courses? Yeah, one of the things that I think is most important for me is that, and it's a saying that my old teacher told me was, you never really understand a subject until you have to teach it. Uh, when you have to teach it, you have to know it backwards and forwards and all kinds of different angles. And so much so, especially with the pandemic and in the time I've spent at Roosevelt, um, it it's become the point when, you know, you have to make curricular changes. After a while, you start to realize 
this this thing I've been pushing, uh, or this analysis topic or this idea is just really not that important. What's more important after times of experience is, is you know, the long-term things that's going to help the students. Is melodic dictation so important because I want them to get every note right? That's not the point of melodic dictation. The point of melodic dictation is to get your ears honed in to this and to really focus and polish your ears. The purpose of, um, of different topics have changed for me and it starts to, and the practical actual application of what I've been teaching has changed a lot over time as I realize what's important. We have so little time to, to teach music theory and musicianship and other things like this that you have to boil it down to the things that are most important. And that's what's been uh, that way. Uh, being at the same institution, um, I enjoyed um, getting to know other people outside of the um, of my schools and their approaches have really opened up me to a lot of opened me up to a lot of different um, different ways to approach the topic. I, I uh, I've always said the story that I always think about is I don't know if you remember the actor um, Kelsey Grammer, the guy that played Frasier for years. On, oh, sure. Yeah. And one of the things he said that has always struck me was that he felt his success was due to having talented people around him. Um, whereas some people get threatened by to other people that are talented. I find that having people of talent around me just makes me better. And so we've, I've been lucky to have some great colleagues at Roosevelt um, who've, some who are still there, some who've moved on and I think the collaboration that we've done has only made me a better teacher and a better uh, theorist. Today we're going to be discussing music theories or music theory and the white racial frame by Dr. Philip Yule. He's at CUNY, I think, right? I think so. Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to <laughs> exactly what he is. He's at Hunter College at CUNY, yeah. Okay, CUNY. yeah. So I would love to know because you know, for, for the listener, a little background knowledge on how we do the pod. When we ask a guest to be on the pod, we ask them what they would want to talk about and we open it up to, it can be something that you've written. It can be a piece of music that you really like. It can be an article written by someone else. It can really be anything in topics of music performance, music theory, musicology. And I must admit, when you said that you wanted to talk about this article, I was quite surprised <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's a hot button topic, especially right now. And um, I don't even remember when I encountered this article or who first sent it to me. I feel like it's really permeated my entire first year of music theory because it's been such a big deal in the world of music academia. So is there, I guess it might be obvious, but is there like a particular reason why you wanted to talk about this? Yeah, yeah, because, um, you know, obviously um, the article is recent 
Um, it came from the 2019 plenary session at SMT. Um, it's, of course, relevant, so relevant to the racial changes that are happening in the country right now um, with Black Lives Matter um, and many other issues of race and um, racial discrimination that's going on in our country. And while, to me, um, issues of race have always been uh, been around for a while in, in discussions of music scholarly work, um, the timing of this article has been outstanding for what we are dealing with in every way. And I think, and, and, and at Roosevelt University in the Chicago College Performing Arts, we are, of course, trying to adjust our curriculum to, to rethink the curriculum um, that we do every day in light of his article and in light of these issues. And so it's an issue that I'm dealing with every day in the classes that I am teaching, I'm going to teach, uh, and so forth. So this article has been on my mind very, very much so. I think that one of the purposes of the article, um, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but um, is to have these discussions. Um, I think he really wants to have these discussions. As I said, um, as I thought about, was thinking about this, I remember one of my initial reactions to listen to reading Yule's article was this, okay, what do I do? What do I do now? Um, how do I, how do I fix some of these issues? And I was a little bit disappointed at first that he didn't seem to, to give me, I wanted specific concrete things. You need to read this textbook. You need to read, do these com composers. You need to do these things. And he didn't do that. And I was a, a little bit disappointed. And then as I reread the article and as I was getting in touch with the topic, I realized um, how important it was that he made the distinction that he's not the one that's going to give us the answers to these issues. It's not going to be one person that's going to deal with these issues. It has to be the entire profession. And so I was thinking when you had this podcast that that if somebody's interested in music theory, they've got to realize that this is that your podcast can be one of the areas to discuss these issues and to bring up the topic and um, the discussion's got to happen. And I'm looking, I, I have my own perspective to, to bring to the discussion. Um, and it's, it's of a, of a person who's not of color and I have my, but I have my perspective as a teacher. I have my perspective as um, somebody who's trying to change. And I also have a lot of questions that I'm asking that I'm looking for um, responses. To. And I, you know, hearing your two responses are going to be some, but I'm hopefully you'll be getting responses on your podcast um, that I can look at as well. Um, but I hope that that the reason why I chose this topic was to continue the discussion, to give my two cents, and to uh, show you the questions I'm asking. Yeah, I think um, to your point about the the instant. Um, inclination to fix right and to oh well now in light of these issues like I have to do something it has to be drastic or it has to be immediate and you know he points out so expertly like this is not to have that sort of attitude is to imply that it's a smaller problem than it is right mm -hmm. and that it's not like a deep-seated like structural issue that's going to have to be uprooted and through the the dismantling of the profession itself and the re yep. and the rebuilding of the profession and so and i oh you know we'll get to it but that final section of recommendations is my favorite section because i love that he points out like yeah that this is not something that i have the answer to it's such an 
an immediate way that people have tried to discredit every all of his claims is to say, oh, okay, well, if it's broken, then give us the solution, then you fix right. it, right? Yeah. And that's that's a way that, that that's white supremacist rhetoric that uh, seeks to invalidate a black person or a person of color that points out these issues. It's like, oh, okay, well then fix it, show us the better way. Oh, you can't? Well, then that means that our default system is what works best. And that's just exactly. like ludicrous, right? Insane. <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And um, it was it was a realization. I, I, I've always thought about one of the funny things and when I've written articles or papers or given papers or something like this, that um, I'm always kind of shocked when somebody will ask me a question and I'll say, wait a minute, but I addressed this exactly in page 75 or whatever. And of course, I know my paper inside and out cold, you know, um, and I found that rereading his article so many times has I, different things have jumped out at me and my initial reactions. I, when I read it again, it's like, oh, he answered that here. Oh, he answered that here or he gave his opinion here. Um, and of course, there, there's elements that um, that I might have approached differently, but um, it's just it's such a well-researched, well-written article that takes a lot of reading and coming back to, which I say to to again to his credit, that shows the quality of work he did here, and that it's it's the depth is is quite amazing. And most of the questions that I have had, I found answers are his answers in the article and it just takes a while to get to know the article it's like a great piece of music you know you it, you don't just learn it in one sitting you've got to really uh it takes a long time and and years and years later you can find more things and that's what i find with his article i'm finding more and more things every time i read it great um emily you have anything that you want to start us off with yeah i was gonna jump in because i'm interested to hear kind of like your approach to addressing like the background of Shanker to the class, because I, I was, we talked about this before a little bit in one of the other episodes about my experience with learning about Wagner and how he's very anti-Semitic. And I thought it was interesting. I'll talk about it again, just as Dr. Hasfi didn't hear, but I played um, Wagner's Demeister singer my junior year of high school. And at that time I was always researching like the composer and the piece um, always before, and that was audition music too. So I wanted to know it cold. And I remember going to my first violin lesson with those excerpts. And I think we were playing like one of the really beautiful melodic sections. And my teacher was just like, oh, this is so, so beautiful. It's such beautiful music, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, I love it. And he's like, yeah, but you know, Wagner, like, well, I'm not going to say it on the podcast, but he called him a bad word. <laughs> and I was, I just kind of like froze. I looked at him. I was like, okay, my mom's like right outside the other room. Bleep on, the, on the podcast, <laughs> we'll have our first bleep. I'll edit it in. Wow. <laughs> And who would have yeah. come from Emily of all people? Uh, so yeah, and, and he's like, right? Like he he was, he was like, he literally sided with the Nazis. You know this, right? And I was like, yeah, I researched him like a few days ago. And he was like, yeah, okay. I want to make sure you knew that. And then we just went on. And then, you know, I go to like school the next day and I talk to my director and I'm like, oh, did you know, like with these excerpts, like the composer and I explained like his background and she didn't know. And she never really talked about it during class. And then a year later after that, I played it my senior year of high school in a youth orchestra group, and it was never once mentioned, like the background of anything within the music. And like there were some younger kids there, mostly high school, but there were like a few, you know, like 10 year olds or something. So, 
but I still don't think that's necessarily an excuse. And now, especially looking back at it from like more of an older, more mature perspective, like I really respect my teacher for, you know, telling me about it kind of in a bit of a humorous way, just because I was a bit younger, but also serious at the same time. So I thought about that too. And I was reading the article. So I'm curious to hear like more of your perspective on how you address Shanker. Well, as I was thinking about this thing, I started writing down notes and I got pages and pages on this. So it's going to be a long answer. So okay. <laughs> don't be afraid to, if I say anything that, that is unclear to, to say, hold on, explain that again. First of all, you know, one of the things that's important to understand about, about the history of music theory is that, yeah, and, and when you become a music theorist, you, you study this in graduate school, you study about treatises that were written um, from contrapuntal treatises to all the way to cur current times. Um, and if you look historically, the way music composition was taught, our music theory was taught, it was very much, you know, if we, if we just started the Baroque times as a place, because we got to start somewhere, um, is, you know, it was figured based theory about how to write figure base and write lines with it or counterpoint. It was very much focused on melodic lines and how they would match together. And then it was only in the late 18th century into the 19th century that the shift started going more towards thinking harmonically, you know, or about chords. And it was only in the late 19th century, we started doing Roman numerals. And so much of what music theory is being taught, at least when I was growing up and in the United States, was about Roman numerals. You know, this chord is this chord, this is a major chord, this is a minor chord, this is the Roman numeral we use. Um, and one of the things that was very appealing about Shankarian analysis to those in the United States uh, around in, in the 20th century was that Schenker's analysis was trying to bring back a little bit of the melodic aspect of counterpoint as well as harmony. And it was kind of a, a merging of the two. And I say that in a positive way because music doesn't just exist horizontally, it exists um, vertically, it exists in many different dimensions. And um, for me, Schenker, when I was in grad school taking my two classes on it was, was really a great thing to do. It was one of my favorite classes um, because it spoke to me in ways that was musical. It spoke to me in ways that were um, explained things both vertical and horizontal, it was it brought the idea of um, of multiple elements of the macro analysis, looking at the details of the music, to stepping back and looking at it music from a larger perspective. So it's important to understand um, how 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 Schenkerian analysis was very very much a, a, a reaction against the only vertical approach to music. It was looking at vertical and horizontal. And it's also, of course, important to understand that that Schenker was being done. Um, Schenker was a late 19th century, early 20th century person, um, and he was very much reacting against the dawning of atonality. He felt that tonal music was the way it was supposed, the way music was supposed to be, and so his reaction in trying to show analyze music of of tonal masters of the German era was to repudiate atonality. You're giving up tonality, that's just wrong because this music is great for these reasons. So that's important. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of really interesting and good stuff. And even, even Yule says in his article, he doesn't want people to stop teaching Schenker. Um, and for me also what was good about it was that at least the way I was taught was it, your analysis was always confirmed by your ear. Um, it was a very much a performance-based analysis. Um, and, you know, you, you, 
performers could could do an analysis and get insight into their work and it would affect how they performed the piece of music. Because to do a Shankarian analysis of a passage or anything requires intimate knowledge of the music. You have to account for everything in the music in your analysis. And that kind of intimate knowledge of the music is great. When Schenker was teaching analysis to his things, he taught to his students, he taught them as a in a in a private lessons kind of a thing. So if somebody was attacking a movement by whoever, it was a private lessons kind of thing, and it would be months long analysis of a piece of music. Okay. And it wasn't just like, oh look, this is a sonata form. Oh, isn't that nice? It was much more in-depth. And also, uh, Shankarian analysis has been very divisive in music theory. There are many people who, who have an issue with Shankarian. They don't care for his, his analysis. So the crit critique of Schenker is, is has been present long before Yule said his things on different issues, although some of them were important. I mean, there's weaknesses in the theory. There's aspects of music that it doesn't really touch very well. It doesn't deal with rhythm very well, just to name one. But it's been recognized for a long time that all of Schenker's examples are the music he analyzed are mostly, mostly not all, but mostly German. Okay, and there was a thing like, wait a minute, there's people outside of Germany that are good people, and his language was always that these German composers are superior, and there was always that issue that had been around for a long time. The uh, other thing is, of course, Schenkerian analysis requires a lot of fluency in in Western music analysis anyway. So you don't attack Shankarian analysis until you're really fluent um, in harmony and melody and all these things. Ideally, you would take a class in counterpoint before you would take a Shankarian analysis class. So you're really stooped in. It's not something for the beginning of the beginning. So those who have an issue with music theory in the first place that don't really care for doing musical analysis, you know, kind of use Shankarian analysis as a catchphrase of this is something I hate. So it's been around for a while. So to answer your question, Emily, how am I going to deal with the, the issues that Yule brought up? Um, and I, again, going back a little bit further, I realized that when I took Schenker back in the dark ages, when the dinosaurs ruled the earth and we didn't have electricity, that, um, my teacher never had us read Schenker. And I just thought, oh, well, it's because it was originally in German or the translations were terrible because I had read plenty of translations of German that made me want to fall asleep. Um, so I thought that's what it was. But now after Yule's article and the reading was it, that, that the problematic issue of his language, his racist, um, his very you know, white superiority language was not was kind of pushed to the side in my class to not know about it. And to tell you honestly, I didn't do much Schenker reading in my classes. Um, and I remember questioning another Schenkerian teacher. Do you do it? What kind of articles do you read? And his reaction was, well, I just have them sketch. I just analyze, analyze, analyze. So they learn the system. And all of this was that thing that Yule talks about, that whitewashing and getting away from the language. And he, he points out so beautifully the way uh, many um, 
current theorists and past theorists have kind of dismissed that racist language and all that stuff. And to tell you honestly, I had never dealt with it. And so now with the Yule's so so excellent summarization of his um, his works, I realized this is the perfect article for my Schenker class to read and to deal with. So my plan is to teach Schenker analysis the same way I taught it up to the midpoint when they have a midterm project and they have to do something just from the point of view of letting them get to know the system, letting them get to know how to sketch, letting them to understand at least the fundamental basics of what he did and having done some sketching. So when they're reading uh, Yule's critique of Schenker, they're not coming from the point of view of, I don't know what Schenker is, at least they have some idea of what Schenker is. So that's one mm -hmm. of my ways of dealing with it because I don't think you can come informed about the critique of Schenker until you understand how to do it. And it takes a lot of time to understand how to do Schenkerian analysis. And I say the time is because Schenkerian analysis uh, um, involves graphing of your analysis on the staff. His system of doing it and using notation and beams and slurs and all that stuff is very complicated. And it takes a while to take some doing before you understand it. And only then I hope that at that point, halfway through the um, the class, the students will at least see some of the benefits or some of the insights that Shankarian analysis brings to tonal music. Then when we read it, I'm really, this is where I'm running into the issue once we read the article, because in a certain level, um, Schenker, Schenker is like a lot of music theorists at his time, where they're trying to prove this this natural organic evolution of tonal music. Um, and that's just the rhetoric partially of his time. But, and we also know from Yule's point that he's coming from a time of when Germany had been humiliated after World War One, and the, and the general um, at, at atmosphere at the time was, was very anti-German. And so he was trying to promote German, but without a doubt, his work is racist. His, his statements are racist. His ideas are really um, challenging to our perspective. So my next part that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do is, is figuring out how do we deal with influential figures of history who have this racial back, racist background? You know, we have to acknowledge it. First of all, like you were saying, Emily, you have to acknowledge it. To to not acknowledge it is suppression on a certain level. But do we just dismiss their work because of their racist history? And that to me is one of the most, the biggest challenges that I have. I hope to um, to deal with that. And I hope that we, like Yule says, we're not going to just throw Schenker out the window because I find his analysis technique insightful as a analyst, analyst as a performer, as a um, appreciate as a, someone who who likes just listening to music in general. So I, um, but I think we have to we have to acknowledge it, and and that's why I I want to kind of approach it that way. The second half of the class, how I'm going to deal with it, is the challenging part. You know, I have no problems. I tell students all the time when you're doing your final project or whatever in Schenker analysis, if the point of your paper or your analysis is to say, Schenker doesn't help me, 
with this analysis are, I don't like Schenker for these reasons, that's fine. But at least come from a point of view of you understand what Schenker was going to do. And now it's going to be, can we have still have insight to this, uh, still have, still use his techniques, acknowledging his, his racist tendencies, um, but not throwing it out. And that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out now. that was going through my mind as you were talking is I was like I I it always prickles me this argument of like well the people that criticize Shanker just don't understand it and if they did understand it then their critiques would change and it's like so that's I understand not exactly what you're trying to say because the because the other side of that is um there are a lot of there's a lot of work that I've read by by white scholars that are like, well, rap is blah, 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 and have like bad things to say about, you know, right. black music and things like that. And then, you know, my instinct is to say, well, you don't get it or it's not yes, for yes. you and it doesn't have to be. And, yeah. you know, so it, there are like two, two different sides of the same sure. coin. One of the weirdest things about uh, when you read treatises, um, about this is this desire for these uh, old ancient scholars from the 17th, 16th century to say that music is comes from God and is part of nature and all this stuff. You know, this proof that you know the major triad is a great triad because it comes out of the harmonic series. But they run into the problem because they can't find the minor triad in the harmonic series. And there's been people that have gone to such lengths to prove the minor triad by saying there's not just an overtone series, there's a undertone series. And if you go below a fundamental pitch, then you can find the minor triad. As if the merits of a major and a minor triad must come from the overtone series or are we are there no good, you know? And and it's just these these silly links that people go to to prove their theories. So in Schenker's case, he talks about a hierarchy of harmony or tones or stuff. And as Yule says, he ties that into a hierarchy of races. Now, why he feels the need to connect a musical hierarchy to a racial hierarchy is beyond me. You know, why this need to connect society to a a phenomenon that's a musical phenomenon is is one of the issues that has even beyond the issue of race it's like why do you feel that this you need to prove your theory by connecting it to race it's just it's just ludicrous um and but it's it's a time-honored tradition and um and many of the treatises on theory that happened before him i also would say one of the benefits that i like about Schenker's analysis is that he applied his analysis technique to just a copious amount of music. It's not like he said, I think music does this and let me find it in the music. He was 
extremely versed in the German music that he had. He knew Beethoven's catalog backward and forward. He knew Mozart's catalog backwards and forwards. He didn't come to this theory before he knew the music. He knew the music and, and came to his theory through experience. And I, and I think that is a positive, but we also have to realize that, that this was a very limited uh, thing when you start thinking of the scope of music in general. So if Schenker were to come out and say, I'm going to show a theory that I have for, for analyzing music by German white men, then everybody would have been like, okay, because that, because it works for German white men's music, you know, but when he's saying uh, these German white men are the superior race, are the superior people, that's where it, it just falls apart and um, just doesn't make sense for us today. Right, because the implication there is that music by German white men is the superior music. Exactly, exactly. And of course, that's one of Yule's biggest points, not only about Schenker, but about um, all the rep that we cover in the common practice tonal music that we study in music schools, you know. Um, anyway, but, what, but I think um, to me that we have to realize that, that we have to find a way to reconcile these racist views with elements of his theory that might be of merit. And as I said, when I talk about learning Schenker, I don't mean, I don't mean, um, you know, opening, I mean, acknowledging his concepts as in trying to understand his concepts and apply his concepts and see if they make sense to you. Um, because I find that most people who study his music say, oh, this made me think of tonal music of these composers in a way I never thought about it. And it opened their minds and their ears to uh, a new way to conceive of music. Um, and it made them think. One of my favorite things to do I, I, in Shankarian analysis is we'll do analysis of a passage. And um, one person will, will emphasize certain elements of the music and another person will emphasize the other or, or different element. And I'll say, okay, those of you that heard it this way, try to hear it the other way. And those of you who heard it that way, try to hear, hear it the other person's way. And it's always amazing because they, they stop and they go, wow, I, I, didn't, I didn't think of it that way. And it changed the way I heard the piece. Or, no, 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 I, my ears confirmed the way that I heard it originally. And, but opening yourself to hearing music in different ways was one of the positives. And we discuss how one person's analysis and another person's analysis are both legitimate um, in the sense, but but they each highlight different aspects of the music and can be effective on the way you listen and the way you perform. And I think this is one of the strengths of the theory to open your ears and minds to other ways to think about the way music is structured, the way music works. And it's okay to disagree with somebody. You know, and I, it's, I actually, I tell the story all the time when I was taking Shinkarian analysis, we had two semesters at University of Texas. And um, the first semester was was very, um, was very much like I said before about learning the technique. And the second semester, we really got into the music. And and this guy, this friend of mine and I were, were kind of sad because um, everybody in the class tended to agree about the way to analyze music the same way. And we started throwing out contrary analyses on purpose just to get people talking and thinking about other things. And then the teacher started realizing we were just being contrary. 
And he started, he had to kind of sit down and go, you guys are just saying stuff to make trouble. And we were like, no, no, no. We're just trying to engender conversation. We, we wanted people to think about and justify their reasons. And I thought that was one of the fun parts of Schenker is reconciling different approaches to the same piece of music. Um, while some Schenkerian uh, teachers may not like that, um, that's at least the way I teach it. Right. Um, going back to what you said about him being able to apply these theories to a wide range of music, which again, isn't really that wide in the grand scheme of things. Right. I think because of that, it has become in the music theory field so synonymous with expertise that it is now used as this way to invalidate pieces of music that don't uh, fit into being able to be, you know, analyzed and put into a a Shinkirian graph. And so I read on Dr. Megan Lavingood's what school is she at? Shoot. Hold on. <laughs> we apologize to Dr. Lavingood. <laughs> oh my gosh. Dr. Lavingood, please come on the show. We love you. <laughs> I still have to look at that uh, Twitter thing that you talked about yesterday. I was going to do it last oh night, gosh. but I was doing some Everybody... other stuff. So. Everybody, please follow Dr. Lavingood on Twitter because she's the best. (laughs) Oh, George Mason. Okay. George Mason University. Got it. Okay. She has this blog post where she, uh, in defense of Dr. Yule's article, pulled like a bunch of like reviews and critiques from different Uh, places on the internet and compiled them in her blog to say, okay, so all of these responses are the reason why Dr. Yeah. Yule had to write this article, right? So these responses of like, this isn't real music theory, right? Race has nothing to do with music theory. Right. Shanker didn't mean it like that. You're ignoring the historical context, but all yeah. that stuff with, is heinous, right? Yeah. And yeah. in seeing the response to not only Dr. Yule himself, but to Dr. Lavengood and to other people that have, um, come alongside Dr. Yule in the discussion, so many people have chosen to attack them through like, well, you don't know anything about Shakir analysis anyway. I bet you've never taken a class. I bet you've never studied it. And so you can't critique something that you don't know. It it becomes this thing where if you aren't aligned with Shakir's theories, then you are now less of a scholar in the field. And like the response to to Dr. Yule directly. It's just been so hostile for him not even saying something. To me, the the article doesn't even strike me as particularly radical. Yeah, It's that he's stating the facts and saying that we should no longer ignore the facts. And even that has garnered this like incredibly heinous and violent response to me is like as a as a black woman entering into the field it's terrifying right to know that i'm like signing up to be a part of this field where there are so many in so many ways it you know i'm 
Uh-oh. set up to fail and set up to be harassed and set up for my career to be in jeopardy if I don't do the dance and praise the right people and say all the right things to even get in the door, right? Like even, even you know, him kind of going through the rigmarole, he talks about this in his uh, six-part blog series, which I would recommend to everybody. Um, even him trying to get tenure at his institution, right? And how difficult that was and things like that. It's just like, there are a lot of things that are not set up for me to succeed if I don't say the right things and and do the right things and the stakes are higher for me as a black person and as a woman. I agree with you. The the reactions have been frightening. And, and, you know, I, what I see also, um, is one, an issue that's more fundamental music theory. That's not a, a racial issue is that I think all of us, uh, it, there's a thing inside the profession of approving high quality music through analysis that in somehow we, our analysis can show that this is a good piece of music or not. And that's just really problematic. You know, anybody that tries to do that um, is, is there. I, I, in fact, I did a paper at a local conference on Shostakovich's seventh symphony. And um, one of my, original approaches to the topic was to say that the symphony had the seventh symphony had been kind of looked down upon as not as good in his um output and and i started off trying to prove that it was a good piece of music and suddenly i realized well how can i possibly prove that it's you know more of a matter of taste more what i was trying to show was um what i ended up doing was trying to show innovations he had made to the piece um to the symphony symphonic form so um it's of course just problematic from that point of view of proving worth through all these kind of things um and secondly um but i know that i am constantly appalled and shocked you know both in in regular everyday things as well as in the reactions to yule's article the the flagrant racism that people don't see it's just it's shocking to me you know um and um, I, I'm really blown away at how prevalent it is. And it's kind of makes me see how naive I am um, from so much point of view, being a privileged white guy, white man, you know, that I don't see it every day as, as, as often as I do with other ones. Would, as often I would if I was a person of color or something like this. And so um, it's constantly, um, it's upset. It's, um, disturbing to think, you know, that in some way, that in ways that I was either conscious of or unconscious of, I was contributing to it uh, through this uh, system and so forth. So it's, it's a, a, a thing that we are dealing with. I thought that um, you'll put it perfectly in that we in some ways have a lot to thank for the past presidency. While it was repugnant in so many ways, it brought to the fore issues that had been held on held outside of public discussion in our first episode in talking about kind of our musical backgrounds and our progression into getting interested in music theory i kind of name like oh over the past year i've really had this reckoning in opera and like how so much of opera is racist and has you know felt really personally hostile to me and so like mm-hmm. music theory feels like 
a more welcoming, like <laughs> ready place. And I kind of threw opera under the bus, but in re- and, but I kind of said that in reality, knowing that if I also throw theory under the bus, even before I started my PhD, like again, what kind of harassment am I setting myself up for by coming out the gate critiquing music, like the field in this way? But it's really like, there's not really a place I can go in classical music that's not going to reproduce these same issues. And so it's kind of like, even if the tides are changing and it's slow it's still like there's there aren't any mechanisms in place for me to like be protected right Right. or for me to and it it's I don't know like in some ways I don't fully conceptually understand what I'm getting myself into and what I'm signing up for sure of course I mean um when you're a member of the profession and you see individuals that you have great respect for in their research and some of their vitriolic responses. It's been shocking to me beyond words, the individuals that I had great respect for that I now don't want to associate with. Um, But I, of course, you know, change doesn't happen in a vacuum and um, your voice is going to be an important one. Change is hard. It's really hard. And, and, you know, we like to think that we can stand up and say, this is wrong. And everybody's going to nod their heads and say, yes, but it's just unfortunately not. Um, and the bravery and courage it takes is hard to, to calculate. It's really hard. Is there something else that you want to touch on before we end so that we make sure we can. Um, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I mean, okay, from my perspective, I didn't even realize that there's different types of music theories, you know, like based on from what we focus on and like other like. um, I'm going to put this at the end of the podcast, by the way. Dr. Hussey isn't here because he's having computer issues, but we're just going to continue the discussion just a little. Okay, okay. Continue, continue. Yeah, like how there's different, like from Asia and Africa, like different types of theories. I didn't know that was a thing. And like when I was kind of like reading a bit like about like different theories, like with music and generally different like pieces of music um, and the conversation of like reducing the regular four semester music theory course to incorporate other theories. I can't remember if this was from the Yule article or if it was a different, because I got like led to different articles as I was reading the Yule article. and like, I guess that's interesting. I'd like to hear maybe yours and Dr. Hussey's perspective on like, if that would be possible and like how we would do that or even to make theory more than four semesters. That would be exciting to get like more, <laughs> like more in depth of things, especially because we like rush through stuff. And if we're trying, if we want to include stuff, but we also can't like limit certain stuff, like why don't we just make it more, get rid of the gen eds and let's do more theory. <laughs> So this is interesting, right? This is interesting. You're proposing like, oh, we should just redo all of the undergraduate <laughs> curriculum. And why do you have to take math when you can take four, six semesters of theory? Okay, so this is interesting because there is a lot to talk about and a limited amount of time because you do still have to take math and English and all that stuff. There's like so much that you have to do as a freshman or like your first mm-hmm. two years um, in college. And like the thing about it is so even what we're talking about is all Western, right? All Western theory. 
we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of like, what if we did a semester of, you know, Asian music theory, right? Or African inspired music, right? Studying theories from other parts of the world in order to analyze their works, right? right? Like we don't do world music a lot. I don't know if Roosevelt has a world music class that's required. I had one during my undergrad, but like that was again, one semester for the rest of the world. (laughs) right and so it's like even in saying like we should have six semesters of western music theory okay that in and of itself reinforces that like western music is more integral to classical music yeah like i mean like six semesters of like theory in total like with like different with like so so that would just be it, it it's kind of like who gets to decide what's in and what's out like how much yeah. time we spend on Western theory versus non-Western theory and all that stuff. Um, okay, Dr. Hesse's back, so we've got to wrap it up. I remember being blown away by my music theory professors and their knowledge of the literature. Somebody was talking about an unusual chord progression, and it blew me away when another theory says, oh, that's also in this piece, and that's also in this piece. And they started popping off all these pieces, the thing, and I felt so stupid. Like, how do I not know all these music things? And then as I started teaching after 10, 15 years, I started doing that. And the reason why I started remembering pieces that had this particular chord progression or, or exemplified things was purely from years of experience, you know, it wasn't a sign of me being super smart. It was that I had used these examples in test situations and that's how I knew them. And it takes time for people to learn, learn rep and learn other things. And one of the things that I think is most frightening to music theorists when they talk about redoing the curriculum to be more inclusive and studying other types of, of analysis systems, like you'll suggest, is that we don't know, most of us, these other analysis systems. We don't know music outside the Western canon. And it means a lot more work for us. It means a lot more realization of what we don't know. You know, where whenever you teach a class, you're coming from a certain place of superiority. I know this stuff and you don't. I'm teaching this to you. And um, it, it, it tends to be, coming from a place of view of fear fear of having to do these things and when until you can admit that you have this fear um you don't and of course if you've been teaching something for 20 some years and you find out you got to teach something new there's a lot of people that don't want to do that you know and it's hard and i i think yule makes the excellent point he's not suggesting we throw out the white german composers Everybody has their place, but we got to recognize there's a lot more out there than that. So you as young music theorists, young and up and coming music theorists will have that. You know, I remember when I was a young and up and coming theorist, there were aspects of textbooks that I was reading that say, oh my God, I'm never going to teach that. That is so ancient and so old. I am on the cutting edge. I know more. Now, of course, I'm one of the old farts who's perpetuating the uh, the white boy system. So, 
<laughs> comes around just you know you know you know you turn into your parents that's kind of what you're gonna turn into your music theory professors you're gonna be oh, emily oh emily. no i'm gonna be dr hussey oh geez <laughs> you're gonna start losing hair and growing a goatee and all this stuff i'm getting a haircut tomorrow i could just shave it all off so yeah. <laughs> i'll come in the fall looking just like you everybody for listening to our final episode of the theory club season one uh we had a really really fun time putting it together and thank you to dr hussey for being on the podcast it was my pleasure <laughs> um if you have any feedback for this episode is going to be the most feedback <laughs> You can send it to us at the theory club podcast at gmail.com. We're looking forward to uh, continuing the discussion during season two. So now we're going to, you know, descend into our post uh, school year break. Uh, so sorry, you won't have some episodes for a while, but we will be back in July with our second uh, season of the theory club. So stay tuned for that. Continue to send us your feedback. If you want to be on the podcast, again, send us an email. We'd love to have you listen to your music, read your article, uh, send us suggestions for what you think you want us to talk about and, you know, we'll read it. So, um, but thank you so much for listening and we will see you in July. Bye. Bye. <laughs>